Welcome to Intimacy Choreography in Conversation, where Anne and Carly talk candidly about the growing world of intimacy choreography and shifting performing arts spaces towards a culture of consent. We acknowledge and honor the Tongva peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land we currently reside on and are recording this podcast on. That is the Los Angeles Basin and South Channel Islands. Hello. Hello, are you ready to get into this episode? I am. It's nice to be back recording with you after a, a couple weeks off. Yeah, it has. It's been great. Uh, taking a little break, taking stock of all these wonderful podcast recordings that we have done. Thank you, everyone, for uh, voicing your uh, congratulations and support for this this exchange. And just remember that all of these questions are questions that have come from you, uh, our listening audience, from a previous experience that we had with Directors Lab West. And so we're just uh, categorizing them and answering them, making it organized for you. But thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much for for listening and for everyone who's been sharing the podcast. It, it really helps us kind of like find our audience. So exciting to be back. <laughs> um, and today we're going to talk about consent and audiences, which I think is a really interesting topic that is not usually in the spotlight of intimacy conversations, but is super important. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we, we have different ways of engaging with our audiences and back before the COVID times, uh, there was a very, strict understanding about the role of the audience and the role of the performer in spaces that were uh, designed for that kind of interaction between audience and actor. But now we've kind of fractaled out into this world that's very unfamiliar and very new, uh, very fresh, some people would argue. And um, so we're just going to talk a little bit about what consent means in audiences that aren't in a traditional situation. Number one, uh, an area that I think we both hold very close to our hearts is the immersive experience. Uh, Carly, what's immersive theater? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I don't have a perfect prepared definition. Well, um, what but- we, we're going we're to talk it out. We're going to talk yeah, it out. Yeah. Um, it's my, my perfection is showing. Letting it go, go with the flow. Um, so what I, I'd say immersive theater is uh, a theater experience where the fourth wall is essentially dissolved and the audience becomes a part of the story. It can look so many different ways, but a lot of times there is direct audience actor or audience performer interaction is is kind of a staple of immersive theater. Um and so I think that's why I'm really passionate about talking about how to how to navigate consent in those spaces. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. too, that, you know, there's some really good examples, you know, back in the day, back in the 1990s, 80s, even. I don't even know when Tony and Tina's wedding was created, but I remember that being such a an interesting experience of having actors in character moving around and roaming around the space with an audience like they were at. A, for those of you who don't know Tony and Tina's wedding, it was um, 
it took place uh, at a wedding reception of these very stereotypical, uh, not so cool anymore to stereotype um, mafia families where two, uh, the two young people were getting married of these two mafia families. And um, so you would have a spaghetti dinner and the actors would be in and out and about and around you and a murder would happen. And it was all very interactive and fun. And from that history, uh, you have shows now like Sleep No More, which are huge and have been running uh, or were running in New York and all over the world. Actually, I saw I saw Sleep No More in Shanghai. Actually, oh, cool. and um, it, no spaghetti and murder. No spaghetti and murder. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was just. It was based. It's actually based just murder. On, yeah, the Scottish <laughs> yeah. play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Several murders um, and ghosts. Um, but. Yeah, the immersive theater has found a way into, uh, I think, theatrical culture. Oh, yeah. And when we're talking about consent in those spaces where you can reach out and touch an actor or they can reach out and touch you, we have to look at consent in a completely different way. Yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. And in just where we are in, in Los Angeles, on, on Tongva land, Right now, or not right now, um, but pre pre pandemic times, mm. um, I feel like over the last few years, especially immersive theater, was really gaining a lot of traction. There were so many, even just like pop up experiences, kind of that where you are going into a world and you interact with characters there as you as you go through it. And so, yeah, I think there's, I really believe that all immersive theater should should bring in intimacy folks, um, even just to help talk about, okay, what context are we going to navigate consent for the actors and for the audience to keep everyone as safe as possible. But um, yeah, we just wanted to kind of define or give a little context for immersive theater because there's a few questions um, yeah. today that, that are in that context. Let's get into it. Okay, who's asking who? Because I always forget. I lose track. Oh, uh, me too. Okay, so, <laughs> okay. I'll ask the first question. Okay, and then you know, and then I'll do the second, and we'll okay. go. We'll see back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how good. Remember, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So, okay. Question. question. How does intimacy direction intersect with audiences in immersive theater? Where there's no fourth wall and no actor-audience relationship is defined. So, boop, boop, boop. that's really a good question. Okay, everybody out there who doesn't know what a fourth wall is, theater, Eurocentric theater, let's just be very honest about it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was set up and constructed so that the audience were sitting where the fourth wall of a building or or an environment would be. So if you can call into your mind a set like um what's the one with with Biff and and Linda and, Oh, uh, uh Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman. It, it takes place in a home, in a house, very natural. Yes, very naturalistic theater. You are looking at the house. You're looking inside the house. So the audience is taking the place of what would be the fourth wall. 
When, an, when the audience, when the actors come and talk directly to the audience outside of the action of the play, that is called breaking the fourth wall and stepping out into a space where they have a conversation intimately with the audience. So that's what this question is, is referring to. Um, how, how that intersection happens with, uh, intimacy direction, having, uh, having a voice in, in when that happens. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel anytime an audience and an actor interact on a personal level or a physical level, there may be a call for intimacy direction to take place. I don't know, Carly, what do you, what do you think about that? I I definitely think so. And I don't think it just has to be sexually charged material as we've talked about many times, how intimacy applies to so much more than that. But I think that, um, we can use a lot of the same tools, like creating agreements, um, that the audience can sense to follow before they enter the space or when they buy the ticket or whatnot. And if they can't follow that, then they need to leave the show or the space. And, you know, that can be uh, a lot of different things. But I know a number of immersive spaces have have a rule or an agreement where the audience never initiates touch with the actors, but the actors can initiate touch with the audience. But I would go even farther and say there needs to be kind of an opt out or two options for that. So, like, what if there's an audience member who wants to have this experience, but not be physically touched by any actor, any characters in this world. Mm. What just like it's something really simple, like give them like a big bright orange sticker, put one on the front and one on their back. And then the actors know you're not going to initiate contact with anyone who's wearing an orange sticker or just for example. That's so great. I think, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great example of of how, you know, because we're talking about a neurodiverse world. Uh, and some people, some of our friends that are maybe on the spectrum of autism, you know, their their sensitivities are very particular in the area of touch. And so we want to respect that diversity and we want to make sure that productions are inclusive so that we're not leaving people out simply because they uh, are not interested in playing by the traditional rules that would be set up in an immersive situation. Um, totally, totally. You know? And and I think that also goes for, you know, wanting we don't need to know at like the history or any trauma around touch that our audience has had. Mm-hmm. Like we should be able to make a, a space where that they can come in and, and navigate and know how it's going to go and be able to opt out of touch, but still have the experience of being in the world. So I think that there's a lot of folks that, that that applies to. And there's a lot of folks who don't go to immersive who are like, I'm really intrigued by this, but I just like can't handle being like touched by, by any actors. Right. Um, and we want an, theater to oh, touch sorry. everyone. Yeah. We want yeah. theater to, to reach, to reach everyone. Energetically when, touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want to, we want to reach everyone. We don't want to touch everyone. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I love that. And especially when we come back from from this pandemic uh, and this from this intermission that we're having, 
I feel like we have an opportunity to change a lot of things to the better. Mm -hmm, uh, because mm -hmm. let's face it, things weren't working perfectly. It's not mm -hmm. like, you know, there couldn't be there, that improvements don't need to be made. They certainly do on a whole gamut of issues in theater. Um, but this is certainly one that we can, we can be more inclusive about. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, you know, I, I think that all immersive uh, shows would really benefit from even just having one session with an intimacy director and the whole cast and crew mm. uh, to help them kind of navigate, be like, hey, this is consent. This is how we navigate it. This is how we're going to keep our audience safe as possible and also our actors as safe as possible. Because a lot of these immersive spaces often also will serve alcohol, which is a whole other oh, geez, component. Yeah. And right. then audience members can get rowdy and not care about or forget about following rules or agreements. Um, so I think it's really important to protect the actors because, okay, th they're doing even more than usual. Like you, there's less of a container. We've talked about containers before. There's way less of a container for actors when it's immersive because you have no idea who the audience is and they're going to directly interact with you. So it's this balance of keeping the story moving forward, playing your character, being present and reacting in an improvisational way to the audience that's coming through and like keeping one foot in being present in the story and even more than usual, one foot being present in the world of the audience um, so that you can balance that. So I, I think there's, you know, when, when alcohol, in addition to all that is a factor that it's extra important to, to take care of and protect actors. And I don't know, maybe have, some folks who are kind of background characters, maybe it could be like a couple ASMs um, who walk through the space and keep an eye on everybody and just so that or, or give an actor some kind of like a safe word to call and a protocol for that. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. You know, <clears throat> this reminds me of a time when um, I did the the immersive show on a boat. Uh, we uh, rehearsed this show for about four months and we actually took historical uh, historical people from the Titanic and uh, did their life, you know, created their life stories and put a show together based on the last three hours of the Titanic. Cool. Uh, and so we did the period costumes and we had people uh, with these different storylines. We had 26 actors on like four or five different acting tracks. Wow. And the sound cues were through the the sounds of the boat horn. And it was it was pretty intricate. It was a pretty intricate show. And we did have people in character. Uh, in costume who were acting as those security agents, you know, and seeing and making sure that in the smaller rooms of the ship where things were happening, that the actors felt cared for and that, that they were being supervised and watched uh, because there was alcohol. People did get rowdy. Um, there were every, people were fighting over life preservers at the end and getting in the, I mean, it was just mayhem. But nobody ever got hurt. Everybody felt felt comfortable and good, and it's because we had a secure we had a security team not only in costume, but we actually had um, 
security outside of that so that the audience knew, hey, you know, watch your P's and Q's, you're being watched and let's all just, you know, let this boat sink gracefully. <laughs> but yeah, it's important to set up. Gracefully. Okay? Great. Great. <laughs> Okay, let's, 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 let's get going on the next one. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so the next question, it, we answered some of this already. Is, yeah, we did. Let's see. Question. 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 How might we negotiate consent from and between both audience members and performers in immersive and or virtual spaces? Well, yeah, we definitely like got ahead of ourselves. It's all connected. It is all connected. Um, we haven't talked about virtual space. No, not in this episode. Yeah. So um, virtual space is totally different when it comes to, you know, having people go through experiences, you know, I guess through Zoom shows. Do, are we talking about things like, um, what what is it called? It's called uh, here, uh, augmented reality. Yeah. You know, are we talking about those kinds of spaces when we talk about virtual space? I know someone who is on a show. Actually, I was they were in an interview process with me. Uh, We were both being interviewed. And, you know, the situation was that this uh, space was set up. I think it was a haunted house or something like that Mm -hmm. set up virtually. And so you bought a ticket and you became a person that was going through the haunted house. And even though it was in, you know, cyberland or cyberspace, much like The Sims <laughs> or, or um, Second Life or something like that, it was in a controlled environment. And the, the people in the haunted house, the characters in the haunted house were actually actors who would interact with you. They might ask you, you know, it might be a skeleton who says, hey, do you want to do the monster mash with me? And then you would <laughs> dance you would dance with the skeleton and then they would give you uh, either a coin or some some little thing, a token or something that you could take to the next room. And then you would get uh, interaction with another actor that was, I guess, hooked up to some kind of doohickey. I don't, you know, that's a technical term. Uh-huh, that is a uh-huh. technical term. In the VR whatever world. whatever that was that they were hooked up to, to... Um, to interact and interface in that cyber, in that cyberspace. So, you know, so what if your avatar wants to touch the other avatar? Is there a consent that needs to happen there? Do you need to, to sign off on, you know, this, this character might want to put you in a tango, a tango dip or something like that. And is that okay? Um, I think that's a really interesting space to to think about um because we're not there physically but imagistically we're there and mentally we are going through that experience visually so and pretty soon who knows there there's there's going to be a time there's going to come a time when things that are set up digitally are going to be able to be sensorily um, felt right by the senses to uh, you know from from an individual in engaging in the game right well I think there's kind of two different categories of this there's one if you have like an on screen avatar that you are watching but not mm-hmm. through the eyes of do you know what I mean mm-hmm. versus 
like if you have a VR headset on and you are seeing the avatar through your eyes and as you move your body, you see like the the hands of the avatar or whatnot move and touch and engage with other things in the space. Because I think I think VR is a lot more embodied. And so I think that, hypothetically speaking, would need kind of a deeper level of of consent and negotiation before you go through that. But I still think either of those situations, especially the latter, you know, could benefit from being like the, you know, this is the flavor of the world or things that might happen. And like, I, I think just giving everybody uh, a button, as we've talked about before, the button or a pause button mm. where they can opt out or jump off, jump out of it. Uh, whether it's even in like Zoom theater, you know, if you're in a virtual Zoom theater, um, if you're in maybe a, a breakout room with one or two actors or, or something, just getting get, being given permission at the very top of everything of you, it's your job to take care of yourself. And so if something doesn't feel safe or healthy for you to be a part of, this is how you get out of it. This is your opt out option. Yeah, I'll tell you the story about my just one experience with that with me and Second Life. For those of you who are, you know, too young to remember the beginning of Second Life, <laughs> uh, it was uh, a world that was created and generated meant for commerce, really. Uh, but it was a land of avatars. And so you create an avatar and you drop down into this world called Second Life. And you could do business there. You could hook up there. You could do all kinds of things there. Go to concerts. And uh, I, I, you know, between you, me, and the people listening, not a video person. I don't play video games. I don't know about video games. So here I am. I like get an, an avatar and I jump down into this world. And, you know, I'd heard the, the stories of like, yeah, people are going to try to hook up with you. Like, look out for the Minotaur. He always wants to try to hook up, you know? And so I'm like <laughs> completely, you know, on on needle's edge, like looking yeah. for the Minotaur. Looking Stay for out the of the world. maze. Yeah, <laughs> And I ended up just running from everyone in the, in the space. So I, saw, <laughs> I mean, my avatar was just running, 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 running. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if there had been a consent form that I could have signed, maybe I would have felt better about that and not just been an absolute terror the whole time I was in second life. Right. Or maybe your avatar could have worn an orange sticker and then other people could have been or something like, you know? Yeah. I'm just Uh, here at the beach to look at the beach. Please do not approach me. I do not want a massage, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Second life. It's just (laughs) alternate realities. They're so fascinating. I, the thing that I, this is maybe a tangent. I don't know. If we cut it out. I mean, go for Uh, it. This is crazy already. Yeah. Um, so, and I worked at a sex store for many years um, in a million different roles on the floor was, was my favorite to interact with customers. But I worked in the purchasing department for my last few years. And I just remember there's this one butt plug company that has these like beautiful, fancy butt plugs with like bejeweled ends that oh stick out between your cheeks. Oh, yeah. Um, and I remember like looking at their company and realizing when I was doing some paperwork with them they originated as a second life company and i was like wait what they were a virtual product that became a physical product in the real world and that kind of blew my mind yeah 
So many people became millionaires in that virtual space. Wow. And yeah, I mean, there's stories of people getting married and meeting there and getting married in real life. And, you know, I, I just happen to know one of the one of the the beginning creators of Second Life. So I, I kind of got kind of got obsessed with Second Life, even yeah. though I'm terrified, but like right. yeah, crazy things. Real estate, people Wild. were selling real estate in there for real money, and it got crazy. And, and it, yeah, it reminds me of this play, The Nether. I feel like <gasps> maybe we've talked about this briefly before yeah. by Jennifer Haley. That's just this fascinating exploration of a time when humans mostly live in alternate realities online because that are like super embodied and visceral because the world outside is so bad oh god um and but it's a really interesting exploration of how morality translates into that world um highly recommend go read that go read that play it's a it's kind of a mindfuck in a great way okay but we digress okay next question that's good we went on a little rant there and that was fun yeah it was super (laughs) okay uh carly i have a question how should consent warnings be used how do we balance having a heads up around possibly triggering material without giving away the story to the audience ahead of time and then how does consent fit into communicating to audiences about charged content great question did you mean do you mean content warnings yeah Content warnings, how should they be used? I think this is a very sometimes divisive kind of like hot issue because some people are like, no, you always need to have like a very explicit content warning so the audience can choose to opt in. And some people are like, this defeats the whole point if you're ruining or giving away the story. And I think both of those are very valid. Um, I believe that a general content warning should be used and is really helpful. Even like have it on your company's website. So if somebody's buying tickets to a play, they can see content warning. This story contains uh, sexual violence and domestic violence or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then if there's an audience member who's like, I will be particularly triggered by this and I am going to not consent and not opt to put myself in the audience of that story because it's, you know, hard to leave the theater in the middle of a show and mm. generally impolite. Um, but, all, but so I think that, I think that that's a really useful tool. And I don't think that that, especially if you're telling the story well enough, that's not going to give away, you know, everything that that's happening. So I, I think it's really useful to have a general content warning just about subject matter, and then maybe even have an email that, or a phone number probably an email (laughs) listed where if somebody is like, "Mm, I'm kind of on the fence and I need to know a little bit more that they could reach out and then ask for that. So that's not given away to the general public, but like if somebody has a very particular um, trigger that they are able to get information so that they can make a decision of informed consent. I think that's great, you know, because all we're talking about here is being respectful, conscientious, and kind. Yes. We never want theater to be exclusionary. We want 
as many people who want to come and experience theater to be able to experience it on their own terms. And that's where I come from when I use a content warning. Um, Yes, you don't want to give it away, like you said so perfectly. You don't want people to feel like they've been given a summary of the play with the content warning. That isn't that wouldn't be utilizing that opportunity to its best form, I don't think. Totally. Um, but, and I love the idea about, you know, what, when you purchase your ticket online, you know, information about that content, you know, that, that small content warning there. If you'd like to know more, please email us at yataratara.com. Um, so that you're not giving it away to the general public, but that if people are concerned about things um, that the play, some of the themes that are happening in the play, and they're curious about whether that's going to make them uncomfortable, then they should be able to have uh, a place to go where they can get more information about the content. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, direct a lot of plays that have like very heavy or charged or intense material mm-hmm. often connected to to sexuality because those are the stories I'm I'm most interested in in telling and you know I I have you know a very brief summary and more recently sometimes I've, I've started to use content warnings as I've realized what a useful tool that is mm-hmm. um, and it's like oh I wish I had known this and was able to offer this go back in time but here we are doing our best. Better is better is uh is better than it was. But um, we I, I've had conversations with my friends who are like, you know, I'm not sure if I can, you know, handle the story. Uh, can I call you and ask you a couple questions, or can you tell me a little bit more about that? Or they'll even say like, does it have X, Y, and Z? And then I can say, uh, yes, it does. And then they'll say great. I am so supportive and congratulations on your productions. I can't personally come see it. And I think that's, that's totally fine. I, that's that's something that I've always, I I think it's important to be understanding about. Um, And you'll find that when that happens, you know, when you're honest with your audience about what is happening in the play that you've created with your, with your company or with your group, uh, they will be more open to marketing. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to see it, but I know tons of my friends would love to see it. Yeah. So thank you for respecting me and telling me what actually happens. Let me send this out. Let me post on my, on my social media about this play and help you. Right. And as maybe include to, a content warning. <laughs> right. As opposed to the opposite thing happening where someone comes to your show, they get triggered, unfortunately, and then they talk about how bad your show is. Yeah. So it, it's, it, you know, and, you know, we all know that one bad thing happen you know, travels 10 times faster than one good thing, which is yeah. a weird human nature thing. But but we all know that in the in the uh, marketing world, in the theater world, we know that to be true. So and we know that word of mouth is one of the strongest marketing tools that we as smaller theaters or people that do um, um I don't know, non-traditional work have is our word of mouth. So, yeah. you know, we're, I, I, I really love that, that you made that suggestion to, you know, kind of interface and communicate with, with people who might have a little bit of a concern about the content. It's just to be honest with them and let them know what's going on. And hopefully they, they will um, make their, you know, make their own decision about whether they're prepared to come and see it, but then also maybe they're just bump it 
to their friends, you know. Um, there's always that possibility when um, good energy is involved. Yeah, I think personal relationships go a long ways. And I know it's like the director of a production can't personally interface with every single audience member mm-hmm. necessarily. But, you know, people that you are in community with, like, like you said, in, in kind of smaller intimate theaters, which is what I, I work in, like I do a lot of one-on-one outreach to invite people to see the play. And I, I think that that investing in relationships in an authentic and personal way is a, the most powerful means of, of communication. Um, this is from uh, uh, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown that I, I love and, and take to heart. But one of the principles of that is like building relationships builds resilience within communities. And I think that's a great specific example of that. Like have, yeah. have a personal conversation with people you're in relationship with that you're inviting to a play to kind of offer them a little bit of context if they have any concern around it. I love that. Yeah. And it also makes me think of like when shows have like flashing lights or smoke warnings. Same you know, thing. For, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so it's like, let's just treat charged content in the same way because all of those things can trigger an unhealthy reaction in the human bodies of the audience. So we want them to be informed, have informed consent when, when they go in and it, it doesn't have to, it doesn't spoil the show to say that there is flashing lights or that there is sexual violence. You, right. you know, those are both general enough. They're still, uh, it, <laughs> this is a very silly idea I had, but you know, I, I definitely think those should be like on the website, on, on whatever you're marketing, on your social media marketing. But even in this space, a lot of times when back in the before times, when we would go into theaters and you'd mm-hmm. see a sign that says like, just like heads up this, you know, this show has smoke and flashing lights. You could just add the content warning to that. Or you could even have, this is my silly idea, like a flap of paper that you can lift if you want to read the content warning. And then if you're, you know, (laughs) really don't want to know anything about it, because some people love to go to theater that way, then you don't, you don't lift it and read it. Right. You don't have to lift the flap. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's great and it's tactile and it's it, it's interactive and it's all those things it's all of the things who knows maybe when we get back to theater spaces that is something that uh we can promote or that you know um just for inclusivity and giving people the option to to know a little bit more about the show they're walking into yeah, I think this field is really about giving actors and artists more agency, but also giving audience and patrons, like people who engage on all sides of the performing arts, we want them to have to move through with agency. Yeah. Um, should we do our next question? Yeah. All right. Ready. Speaking of the the after times, mm-hmm. um, what are we learning now about consent in virtual performance spaces? that we can take with us post-COVID when we are in physical spaces together again? Oh, that is really, really good. I mean, I've produced a few shows uh, virtually over this uh, Zoom Zoom mechanism that we have. And, you know, one thing I really, really like about, and this may be absolutely impossible, but, the, you know, the idea of having this live chat action happening during yes. the performance, like what would it mean to have people hooked up with their cell phones 
to some screen where they're posting things. I mean, it would have to be edit. I mean, it would have to be monitored, obviously, uh, through some sort of channels, through some wireless channel to, you know, a technician that is actually transferring. But I just think there's something really cool about seeing people comment and amen. You know, remember we were talking about the amen corner? Yes. It was like a virtual amen corner for a show. Yes. Um, I think that's a kind of an interesting idea to play with. I mean, maybe you don't want to do it for every show, but certainly mm. for for shows that could call for audience participation in that way. It might be kind of cool. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I I really think that it's not for every show because I think that that is the replacement, you know, the the side chat which I have really enjoyed being in in virtual spaces and being able to, you know, amen and and comment and and react like that's the online distant substitute for being in an audience together and like laughing or gasping, you know, in like real time with with people. And I just I love that that exists because this is it shows this human need when we're watching stories together to to connect like even this is this is kind of a funny tangent, but uh, my partner and I have like a standing date to watch weekly watch Battlestar Galactica with a, another theater couple that we're friends with and we as we watch together we like put each other on the zoom so we can see each other and then we have like a text message so we can watch and react like in real time like an audience that's brilliant actually. it's really fun but uh just back to what you were saying I think there are certain shows in the aftertimes that it would serve like shows specifically that are about like digital media and online content in the internet, which there's a lot of very interesting shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think shows like that that could be a fascinating way for for the audience to to respond rather than responding out loud. Um, I mean, yeah, we're in a we're in an evolution. I don't call it a revolution. I call it an evolution. I mean, I really feel like in we are evolving. It, exponentially fast, uh, caused by the pandemic, caused by uh, the racial demand for racial equality in this country, gender equality in this country. You know, all the things that we are done with and that we are demanding evolution in are kind of prompting these new and exciting ways to look at art, to look at our political system, to look at our school systems, our educational systems. So who knows? Who knows how that'll that'll play out? But yeah, I mean, I think innovation, there, something's just going to come out of this Zoom uh, performance. You know, I have a, a, yeah. a dear friend. He's actually um, on my advisory board. His name is Peter Cole. Thank you, Peter, for being so awesome. Um, but he has directed this production that is taking the country by storm. It's called Love and Warcraft. Oh my gosh, I heard about this. Yeah, Love and Warcraft. It's um, uh, it's called In Love and Warcraft. Oh, sorry. In Love and Warcraft Love again. In Love and Warcraft <laughs> by Madhuri Shakar. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing their name correctly. Um, but yes. awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Hazel. And so Peter's the director of that. And it is the brainchild. It's his brainchild. He calls what he is doing with this show 
live video theater. I think that's mm. the definition of what, you know, that's the title of what he's doing. And he's found a way to incorporate this idea of gaming and the relationships that people have over screens and gaming with Zoom and it's live and it's, I mean, it's just this new wave innovation, a new type of theater. Um, it's not just a Zoom meeting uh, with a play. It's right. actually going a level deeper into the performance um, structure and creating this whole new thing. And he's been written up in American Theater and New York Times. And, you know, so I'm really, really happy for him. And I think that he is on the cusp of change. Um, and do we take that back? What pieces? I, I, I kind of feel like we're going to be taking pieces of that back out into the post-COVID times. Oh my gosh, we can't, we can't not. That's, that's so brilliant. And that's so exciting. And just like reminds me of how beautiful and innovative artists are, mm. like, it, especially theater artists, like so much of theater is about adapting to limited circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so it's just so inspiring to see this like, resilience and, and evolution, as you said. It's a co-production between ACT and Perseverance Theater, which is in Alaska. Oh, wow. Cool. I know. Yeah. See, this is another amazing thing that we are getting and can maybe take with us out of these kind of virtual performance spaces is the ability to collaborate across distances yeah. in a different way than we've been able to. And I don't think anything can replace live theater. And I think that there's a reason that we still do it and that just this ritual of storytelling in person together has existed since like the beginning of humanity and still does and has mm -hmm. survived plagues before. But I do think theater evolves and, and I think that you can't, um, you can't, we can't not be changed by this. Like um, everything you touch, you change. Everything you change changes you. From uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Like, Love it. I'm reading that right now. Oh my gosh. It's my I favorite totally book. I totally finished that recently. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I'm going to get a tattoo of it once I can get tattoos again. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I liked it, I liked it a lot. Although I think Lilith's Brood was my favorite. Just look yeah. it up and read about it because it is innovative and new and it it did something new for, for theater performance, for yeah. sure. I'll include some links to articles about it in the show notes, and people can also find the play on New Play Exchange. Thank you, Hazel. Thanks so okay, much. Okay, I'm going to close my little door now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining. That's the best. Hazel's uh, the best. Okay, Hazel. so um, we have one more question. Great. Um. Great. Do you think there are possibilities uh, for the use of these new mediums of performance for healing and therapeutic expression? <gasps> and if so, what might those be? So now we're talking about using these forms that, that we have, these new mediums of performance, and talking about healing and therapy. Wow. Um, oh, my gosh. There's so much. There's so much. Um, and it could go so many ways. So let's let's see where it goes. But I think my first thought that I definitely want to name is that intimacy directors are not the same as therapists. They're not a replacement Correct. for Correct. therapists. 
therapy is an amazing resource uh, if you are able to access it. But it's I, I think there can be a lot some conflation between intimacy work and therapy. And while there's definitely some practices that are in both worlds, it's not in the same context. That being said, I do think that art and especially creating art and performance with consent and boundaries can be really therapeutic and healing. I think that acting out scenarios with different outcomes can be an incredibly powerful way to harness performance um, for personal healing. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's this thing, you know, I, I'm, I don't know any of you, you out there who may know or have heard of this, but there's this idea of playback theater where uh, actors are hired in a therapeutic situation, art, their art therapy situation to uh, help a person retell a traumatic part of their life or, or a traumatic event in their life. And the actor, you know, one actor takes the place of that person and then they, the, the, the person gets to tell, you know, as much as they can about what happened in that moment or in that experience. And then the actors uh, work through that with emp empowering that individual to change the story and to uh, say things they wanted to say or weren't able to say um, in order to heal and find closure in those experiences. And of course, you're going to want to have consent be uh, a part of that conversation. And, and of course, you want to um, have an understanding of the content of uh, that person's experience before. So there has to be that individual giving their consent to share that story so that the actors then can be fully prepared to tell that story and to um, give the gift of closure uh, mm -hmm. to that person in their healing. Um, I, so I, it's a very interesting space. Um, I've had the opportunity to be an actor in that space. Um, and I know for a fact firsthand how that healing happens and how it can be um, transformative for an individual to, to find closure in such a live and vibrant out of their head way. Mm. Um, it's completely sensory. Uh, you know, it, it enlivens the senses and, and gives that individual an opportunity to uh, relive and change and alter and close that situation. So I, I really do hope that, you know, that as a quote unquote immersive experience um, that, that we will find a way to keep that going. And maybe there is a, a way to do that virtually. Uh, I'm not sure. I know there are a lot of video games. I'm just going to talk about this for one second, but mm -hmm. yeah, go for it. You know, there, there, you are, you, do you know what I'm going to say? Do you want to talk so. about it? No, go. Okay. Go. So there, there's, um, these video games now that are level, they have level, you know, just like a structure of a video game, uh, but they are mental health and healing video games. And so an individual who might be having unhealthy thoughts uh, might play one of these games and then find closure through uh, working through the different levels of the game, which I thought is so cool. And so now 
That's amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just throwing that out there. But if there is obviously, um, you know, anyone out there um, who needs that information, certainly take it, look it up online, because there are a lot of innovative ways to work through things um, in that way, in that virtual world. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. This everything you said is is making my brain <laughs> go like a train. Um, it's going in like three directions at once, but I'm going to try to try to harness it and take one, right. one train at a time. Um, so <laughs> the first the first train, it, just when you were talking about the playback theater, it's making me think of um, I did this really excellent training with the Trauma Resiliency Institute. Mm. Um, and it's called the um, Trauma Resiliency Model. And um, it was it was an interesting experience because it was all social workers and psychologists. And I was like, I'm an intimacy director. <laughs> um, but I what? learned so many fascinating things that I've applied to my work. And one of them is the power of gesturing as a is one of many ways to help kind of come back to a resilient zone or a more balanced place where we can manage like feelings that come up in trauma. And so, for example, I, I translated this from because I'm not a therapist, you know, how a therapist might work with a client to how I might work with an actor to do some deep rolling or closure. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if there is an actor who is playing a character who is a victim or survivor of sexual violence in the play, maybe a part of their closer, closure ritual, like physically to physically embody it, is a gesture of pushing somebody off them successfully mm. that their character was not able to do in the story. And that's this really powerful way for the body to have the message of this story has a different ending. Or I, you know, you're you're kind of rewiring neurons mm -hmm. that fire a certain way when you're doing this intense scene of sexual violence to give yourself as closure as th this gesture of stopping it or delaying it so that that lives in your body, which I yeah. think is so powerful and, and fascinating. Love it. And then I was also just thinking of uh, therapeutic theater in terms of theater of the oppressed, of the Augusto Boal. Yes. And th this idea of how actors can or audience members and actors kind of blurring the line between performance, mm -hmm. which that's a I mean, that's a whole other thing that we could get into and like how to facilitate that. And but I think there's a lot of the similar things like creating agreements and giving people an out for when they need. But there's this really amazing exercise that I've had the opportunity both to participate in in a class that I took and then uh, facilitate in a class that I teach sometimes uh, called Healing Through Performance, which is um, it's called the Rainbow of Desire. Great name. Great. <laughs> and you it's essentially you know like you said taking somebody's personal story and acting it out but the culmination of it is the audience and the storyteller as a whole are all pointing out moments that they see where they're like "Ooh, i i this is the feeling or emotion that i see uh that i resonate with and then they go up and physically embody it and so they're becoming all of like the whole audience kind of turns into this rainbow of desires of different feelings. And then the person whose story it is gets to step out of it and they can't uh, get rid of any of the feelings, but they can move ones that they can see objectively in this context. You're like, this is not helpful in the situation. I'm going to move this feeling farther away from the center in ones that feel useful. I'm going to physically move the actor embodying that closer. And then 
see how that that moment goes again to to react wow. in, which is a, a fascinating exercise and that you know is kind of straddling this border between theater and therapy i i would say therapeutic theater rather than its actual therapy at least in the context that i i use it and then finally the last thing that this made me think of and i feel like i'm going on all sorts of all sorts of tangents but um <laughs> run the, with it. Uh, running uh I, I just the intersections of theater sexuality and healing are my like m- the most fascinating things to me so as somebody who is a teacher and practitioner of um, BDSM, there's something really powerful in that, that a lot of folks find cathartic and healing in a sexual role play where maybe you're even, and you know, this is getting into a more, more, a particularly intense zone of that, but being able to have control and dictate a situation where they felt disempowered in real life but be able to actually be the person who's in control of it, whether they're switching roles or they are naming the boundaries mm-hmm. or they enact it in their bodies, but have a different ending. And, and I think, I, I don't know exactly how to succinctly tie that all together, but I just think that performance is an incredibly powerful healing tool because everything we experience lives in our bodies, not yes. just in our minds. And so to have a level of being able to recontextualize or change the narrative of that experience living in our bodies is so powerful and healing. It really is. It really is. And I mean, I mean, we've come to the end of this episode, but certainly this is, you know, the way we can drill down into this and talk about this. We could have a whole episode and probably will um, (laughs) about, you know, how theater is, healing uh, and is and in so many ways how the audience can become a part of that healing or how the audience itself can be healed yes. um, but but before we can get to that like we said this this whole conversation has been about consent for that and about you know making sure that uh there are parameters of play and whether that be between two people or whether that be between a thousand people, uh, we as human beings uh, need to look at how we uh, give our permission and give over to experiences with full knowledge and consent um, to make sure that our boundaries are intact and also that the people who are playing with us boundaries are intact as well. Amen. Um, I love it when you say amen. (laughs) Or uh, what I often say, (laughs) absolutely, which is like the white girl amen corner. Uh, Absolutely. I love you so much. Okay. Are we we wrapping this up? I think so. We're just, we're not sure what what our next topic is. We have this like whole big document with all these things we want to talk about and other questions people send in, but we're going to, we're going to have a meeting next week and That's what reorganize. Just, say. just yeah. say that exact thing. Is that being recorded right now? Yeah, I think so. Okay, say, it again. <laughs> say it again. So I don't interrupt. <laughs> oh, you're the best. Um, uh, yeah, we we have this whole big document about all these topics that we want to get to and other questions that we haven't answered yet that people have submitted. Um, and so, yeah, Ann and I are just going to have our our usual meeting, but probably a little longer. We always meet to to talk before the the podcast a couple of days before, but we're just going to meet and 
figure out what the next few episodes are going to be because, you know, you start with one plan and then you got to like catch up to where you actually are in time. So um, that's right. So you'll we'll we'll see surprise on (laughs) deck, but it's going to be good. Yeah, this this was great. It's it's such a pleasure getting to talk to you about this again. I'm I'm grateful to be back in this virtual space (laughs) with you. Me too. Yeah. If you, yes, you listening right now, have any questions about intimacy choreography, direction, consulting, or just the intimacy field in general, please send them to our email, which is the letters I C I C dot Anne and Carly at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at the letters. I see, I see, underscore, Anne and Carly, where we will be posting info about upcoming episodes and other intimacy-related tidbits. And as usual, we'd also like to pop, pop, pop our sound designer, editor, and otherwise extraordinary person, David Gonzalez. And pop, pop, pop to our wonderful producer, Hazel Lozano. Music by David Gonzalez. The podcast logo is by Zach Brown. Pop, pop.